So who are the five people that you spend the most time with? I want you to list them out in your mind. Who are the five people that you spend the most time with? Or if you're taking notes today, maybe even write those names down. Who are the five people that you spend the most time with? Give you a second to think about that. Now, as you have those people's names in your mind, consider this statement from Jim Rohn. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And what he's done is he's put into words what we all intuitively but often forget, that the people we surround ourselves with have a massive influence on our behavior, our attitudes, and our beliefs. Who you spend time with, what they've got you thinking, what they've got you saying, what they've got you doing, actually shapes who you are becoming. And it begins to set the course of your life. Now, we don't need research to back this up, but research does, in fact, back this up. Social psychologist Dr. David McClellan of Harvard University, just down the road, he spent 30 years doing this kind of longitudinal study, studying people and their reference groups. Reference groups is just psychology talk for the people that you spend the most time with. He found that as much as 95% of your success or failure in life is heavily influenced by the company that we keep. So we know that intuitively and research backs it up and it confirms that we tend to rise and fall on the tides of our closest relationships. In essence, what we find is that we tend to become like the people we hang out with. I mean, we'll even see this in communication patterns. We start to mimic them. We start to say the same words as them. We start to even have some of the same gestures as the people we spend the most time with. In essence, we become like the people we hang out with. Last week, we began a sermon series walking through the book of Proverbs called The Way of Wisdom. And our hope in this series is that we would grow in wisdom, this skill of godly living that leads to a life of lasting value. And last week was an introduction as Solomon opened up his book and kind of gave us a picture and a a definition of wisdom and some skills of wisdom. And, And now the next section of the book opens up these 11 lessons from a father to a son. You could think of it like a best of compilation, a mixtape, for those of you who remember making mixtapes. If you're younger, that's a playlist, okay? And what this playlist does is it gives us uh, uh, pitfalls to avoid and practices to develop in order to live a life that's marked by wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, we've got this first lesson, and Solomon basically says, listen, Make sure you avoid the destructive influences of corrosive company. See, because of that principle, because we become like the people we hang out with, you want to make, make sure that the people you're around actually build you up and set you on the course and path of wisdom. So he's going to open up with this exhortation of wisdom where he invites his son to hear and to receive his instruction. Then he's going to talk about the enticement of sinners, where this, this group of people kind of uh, 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 entice them to, uh, to come down the path of the wicked. And we see that belonging to a group can influence us 
to compromise our values and our beliefs. And then finally, he's going to warn about the entrapment, the trap that is set because of sin. There are unintended consequences for going down a path, for choosing a group of friends because of the way that they can influence, influence us. So today, we're going to see this exhortation of wisdom. We're going to see the enticement of sin, and we'll see the entrapment of sin. So let's start in verse 8 to see Solomon's exhortation. So in verse 1, he says this, Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So he begins by addressing his son. He says, my son, listen to your father. And, and by emphasizing the sonship, he's really calling on him to remember their relationship. You see, this isn't the disconnected advice of, of, of a sage. This isn't someone who he hardly knows. This is his father. And this lesson of wisdom comes in the context of and in the, the intimacy and the safety of this parent-child relationship. And he highlights the importance of the words and teachings of a mother and father. Now, obviously, anytime we talk about family, in, in, in the book of Proverbs, this is picturing um, an ideal situation where a godly father and mother create the context of a healthy home. And if, if we went around and started talking about our families of origin, we'd find out that it isn't always the way that it works out. Right? But for the sake of, of this uh, lesson, he's giving us the picture of the ideal, this vision that we, that we want to strive for as we live our lives. Because we see that fathers and mothers are good gifts from God. They're, they're meant in its best form to guide us and direct us. The words and the lessons of a mother and father are meant to make us strong, to give us uh, the good kind of confidence, to stir in us a Godward ambition. They're meant to be life-giving as they nurture us and as they build up our character. And in a, a home with a mother and father, we're, we're meant to grow into maturity, to learn self-awareness, to learn what it means to be emotionally healthy. The daily lessons and those milestone moments are all opportunities for us to grow into maturity so that we reach our God-given potential based on our God given capacities. That's the, that's the ideal. And, and Solomon is, is saying, you, you've had that kind of home. And he's encouraging his son to listen. And it's just as this son is encouraged to listen and receive this lesson, we too are called sons and daughters of God. And so we're invited to receive this lesson from God the Father. So I want us, as we're hearing this today, to, to be imagining that, that God the Father is, is pulling us up, 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 up alongside and saying, hey, come listen to this word, uh, this, this, these words of wisdom that I have for you. And so the Father says, hear, listen. Now this Hebrew word is more than just the, the simple act of auditory hearing. I mean, he, it, it assumes the son can hear the words, but this is really a plea for obedience. You see, for the son to really hear these words, the son must act on the instruction that follows, not merely be able to verbally uh, regurgitate to his, to his father the words. He doesn't want him just to be able to repeat the words, but he says, I want you to live out these words. It's not enough that you hear them, but you have to listen and receive them. And he goes on to say, um, don't forsake your mother's teaching. This word for forsake in Hebrew means to leave something or someone unattended and uncared for. 
Imagine a fruit and vegetable garden that's been left uncared for. What happens? Well, weeds begin to take over. Uh, the, the, the fruits and the vegetables become picked apart by animals. Um, pests will eat away at the, the roots and the leaves. And eventually, all the hard work, all the investment, all the time that was put into planting this garden is ruined, right? Because it's not enough to just plant a garden. You have to care for it. You have to attend to it. You can't forsake the garden. And that's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, don't forsake our teaching. Care for it. Attend to it. He's highlighting that it takes a proactive spirit to remember something and to put it into practice. It's not that they don't have the information. It's not that you don't have the rules or you don't have the lessons. You have them. It's that you've left them behind. You've, you've neglected to really put it into action. We often think that to remember something is kind of a, a passive thing, right? I either remember it or I don't. Like some information came and, you know, sometimes I remember it and, and sometimes I don't. But that's not how remembering something works. That's not how memorizing something works. That's not how putting lessons into practice works. We remember the things that we care about. And we remember the things we rehearse. And that's what he's saying. You need to value my words. You need to cherish them. And you need to put the time and the energy into remembering them. Put these words into action in your life so that you can actually reap the benefits of them. It requires intentionality. It requires a proactive spirit. It requires work on your part and my part to remember his words. So it goes on then to, 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 to explain the benefits of obedience. And he compares these benefits of obedience to a graceful garland and pendants around your neck. Now this graceful garland he's referring to would have been a twisted wreath placed on the head of a conquering hero. When, when a military victory is won, was won and they're coming in and talking about the glories of it, they would take this garland, they would twist this wreath and put it on their head and everybody who saw it knew that they were victorious. It symbolized victory and vindication. Now this pendant he's talking about would have been worn by um, judges in their day. And, and, and the, the judges of the day would have been people who had lived these exemplary lives. And so if you'd seen someone with a garland on their head or a, or a pendant around the neck, you would have known that these were people who are worthy to be honored, that they've been successful, that they were people of high moral character, they're people of good and sober judgment. And Solomon is saying, when you live out these wise words that I'm giving you, you'll be like that person. People will see your life, and it'll be like this garland around their head, this, this pendant around their neck. They'll know this is a person who's lived a good life. And we know that. We, 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 we admire people who are successful, and you look at their, their track record, and you look at their life, and you, you spend time with them, and you realize this is a person of high moral character. And though they're not wearing a sign or a badge that says it, you know it. And they have a good reputation. He's saying that's what happens. When you receive these words, when you live them out, you'll be like that kind of person. It's something you want. It's a, it's a person who's achieved their goals. Their life is marked by thriving and flourishing. And every one of us knows people who are like that. And you've even, not in a weird way, but, you, but you've admired that. And you've said, I want my life to look like that too. Here, Solomon is pulling up his son next to him and saying, listen, your mother and I want the very 
best for you. Right? Can you imagine saying that to your own child? Can you imagine a good parent saying that to you? They're saying, we want you to reach your God-given potential. God has made you, and he loves you, and he has a path and a plan for your life. And our job as parents is to set you on that path. So listen to these words. Apply them to your life. My question for us this morning is, are we willing to listen to God like that? He's, he's, he's given us his word this morning, and he's saying, my son, my daughter, I have a plan for you. I have good intentions for you. I want to see you thrive and reach every capacity and potential that I have for you. I'm a good father, the best father. Will you hear? Will you receive these words this morning? Do we have receptive hearts? Will we, if we hear something this morning that we're tempted at first to go, wait, I don't know about that. Will we pause? Will we lean in? Will we wrestle with it? Will we consider it before quickly rejecting it and turning it away? Will we take the time and the energy and the effort this morning to tend to the garden of wisdom that's here for us today? Will we put in the time and energy required to hear and remember and put these lessons into practice? This is the exhortation of wisdom. It's this this urging us to be doers of the word today, not merely hearers of the word. That's Solomon's exhortation. And it's the exhortation of God today that will we listen and hear. This is the exhortation of wisdom. Next, let's look at the enticement of sinners. Look at verse 10. Solomon goes on to say, here's my first lesson for you. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, he begins in verse 10 by putting this warning together in a short, compact, easy statement that you can memorize. It's really simple. If sinners entice you, do not consent. You could mull over that. You could think about that. And you could start to learn this principle. And when you learn the principle, this is the thing about wisdom. You don't have to have an exhaustive list of situations and scenarios, right? If you learn the principle, then you can apply it to thousands and an untold limitless number of circumstances. So here's the principle. When sinners entice, stand firm and do not give in. Now this is a a warning, not about some unlikely scenario, but but about something that is guaranteed to happen in your life. Live long enough. And sinners will entice you. There will be this invitation to come and join them. So let's break this down for a minute. What does he mean by sinners, right? Because in one sense, it's true that everyone is a sinner. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has failed to live a perfectly moral life. I've never met the person who says, no, 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 I'm the exception. I have lived a perfectly moral life in every situation, in every circumstances. My motivations and my actions have been pure. It's incredible. You should really look at my life, right? I've never met anybody like that. Everyone has sinned. We have all failed to love God and to love our neighbor with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everybody has sinned against the Lord and sinned against people in their thoughts, words, and deeds by what we've done and by what we've left undone. But that's not what he's talking about here. What Solomon is talking about, he's, the way he's using this word refers to somebody who habitually sins without remorse and without guilt. This is, this is someone who uh, deep down knows that what they're doing is wrong, but they've simply stopped caring about it. Their conscience has become seared. 
That little voice inside their head, they've just kicked that dude off their shoulder, right? Jiminy Crick, I don't want you around here anymore. They don't feel anything anymore. And there's kind of a, there's this commitment to do evil. They're not merely content to walk down the path of evil and darkness alone. Rather, those who walk down this kind of path, they love company. They love recruiting. They love enticing and luring people to come into their world of darkness. Now, this word for entice, it carries with it this idea of temptation, seduction, and deception. These sinners will try to persuade you to join their company. And Solomon says, listen, when that happens, stand firm. Do not consent. Do not give in. Now, Solomon gives a case study, right, right after that. There's the principle, but he also says, okay, let me give you an example so you can kind of think through it. And he gives this example uh, so that it takes it from the realm of abstraction into something more concrete. So here's the example he gives, verse 11. If they say, these sinners, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder and throw your lot in with us. And if you do, we will all have one purse. In this case study, the parents are warning him of getting caught up with this violent gang who preys on the innocent for their own advantage. And you can, you can tell in the way that he's opening up this case study, it's, it's premeditated and it's cruel. It's violent and it's bloody. And the goal is murder and material gain. Now, you might hear that example and go, well, gosh, man, that's a bit extreme, right? I, I'm, I'm not a violent person. I would never participate in a stab and grab. You know, I would never rob someone's wallet. So I'm good here, right? Like I've, I've, I've done lesson one. But wisdom says not so fast. Okay, so maybe you're not tempted to shank somebody in some back alley for shameful game. But are there other ways in which you're tempted to compromise your character rather than trusting in the Lord for his provision and timing? See, we need to unlock the principle that's being taught here to see if there is an expression where we might be tempted. The point is not the case study, but the principle, right? If sinners entice, do not consent. Here Solomon is warning us about three things. So if you unpack this case study, there's really three temptations here that I want to highlight. The temptation of greed, the allure of the immediate, and the trap of counterfeit community. Okay, we're going to walk through those three things quickly. Our goal right now is to diagnose the problem. In the last few verses, we'll look at the antidote to these temptations. But right now, as we unpack these temptations that I think everyone faces, let's see if there are any places where you might struggle with these things. Okay, so the first one is the temptation of greed. Now, what is greed? Greed is an intense and selfish desire for something. That's what greed is. It's, a, it's an intense and selfish desire for something. So by intense, I mean there's this insatiable appetite for it. You, you can have really a greedy heart about anything. Oftentimes, we, we think about it in terms of money, but, but you could be greedy for anything. You could be greedy for money, power, um, approval. You could be greedy for comfort, control. It could be something tangible like a promotion at work that you just get so fixed on having that it, you, the appetite for it becomes insatiable. It could be companionship in a relationship. You'd be going, the, the one thing that will define my life is getting married. 
Or it could be a material things. It might not be just, you know, card hold cash. It could be, it could be material things like a, like a nice house and having it filled with nice things or that vacation home on the Cape. Whatever it may be, none of these things themselves are inherently sinful. None of them just on their own make it sinful. And that's what makes them so tricky, that the initial desire for these things is often something good and right that we need, and, and it's okay for us to want. It's okay to want a promotion. It's okay to want to have a savings account, and to have a home, and to, to, have, to go on vacations, and to, to have nice things. That, none of that is wrong. But when the desire for those things is left unchecked and uncared for, our hearts take good things and they turn them into destructive things all of our hearts are wired to do that and greed is like an addiction it moves from being something you want to have and here's how you can tell it's it's greed it moves from something that you want to have and now it becomes something you have to have all your language when you speak about it begins to change it's not just oh it'd be nice to have these things and hopefully in time is as, as God gives and as I work hard, these things will happen. It becomes, no, no, this is my singular focus. I have to have it. And when it grips your heart, you can't imagine life without it. And usually the desire for it starts small. But over time, as you go day by day and week by week without getting it, your appetite for it grows until it becomes an addiction. And when the object of our desire gets a hold of our hearts, it's in that place that you will begin to compromise your belief system, you will compromise your values, and you will compromise even your very character to get it. Over time, people will go, I don't know who you are anymore. You've been so consumed by this one thing. In biblical terms, we call this idolatry. Greed and idolatry are very closely related. Idolatry uh, is anything that, that you can overvalue and overdesire to the point where now it begins to define you. And now it begins to dictate your meaning and purpose in life. In the example from, from, uh, for Solomon, it's a greed for money. This allure for money. In this case, the desire for money with this group has become so distorted that the gang is willing to end someone's life for it. They're willing to end someone's life to have some plunder, to fill their house, to have some money in their pocket. Their greed causes them to seek gain at the innocent person's expense. So maybe for you, money is that thing. Maybe for you, it's something else. One of the other things that I listed off. Right now, you could be in the grip of it, or it could be in the very earliest stages, undetected. Either way, it needs to be identified so that it can be put in its proper place. So let me ask you some diagnostic questions as we think through the temptation of greed. Here we go. We'll have them on the screen, and we'll have them in the, uh, the, the resource guide as well this week. What pursuits and desires tempt you to compromise your beliefs, values, and characters? in your character. What, what when you hear it, you're willing to go, man, I might be, I, like I'm tempted to be a little bit shady on that. Right? When you feel that temptation to give up a belief or to give up a value in your life, that's a good, uh, uh, there, there's a good chance that that thing has a grip on you, that, it, that it's a place of, of greed because you're willing to compromise who you are 
in order to get that thing. And do you see how that thing now starts to define you? You're no longer defined by your belief system and your value and your, and your character. Now you're saying, I'm defined by this. And if I don't get this, it doesn't matter. So I'm willing to cut out this thing in my life in order to have it. Number two, what in your life do you feel like you have to have in order for life to be worth it? What in your life do you feel like you have to have in order for it to be worth it? Now, this is something you already have, and, and the, the, this is the idea of losing it. If I lost this thing, then life would no longer be worth it. See, the other one was about something that you wanna add into your life. This is something you might already have, and you could take a good thing, a good gift God's already given you, and you could so value it, so esteem it, that to not have it anymore would change who you are. Number three, what, if you got it, would make you feel rich, secure, and prosperous? Now, in a room of, of this size, that, we could answer that question in a bunch of different ways, right? Maybe, like, money isn't the only thing that would make you feel rich and su- secure and prosperous and successful. What is it that if you had it, you would feel rich, secure, and prosperous? All of the answer to those questions starts to get at the things in your life that you might be tempted to have greed. Now, closely related to the temptation of greed is the allure of the immediate. These, are, these go kind of hand in hand sometimes. The only thing better than getting what you want is getting it right now. We can, if we could just skip the line, go right to the front, even better. And our desire to have it now, we'll be tempted to seek easy gain by going around the law or going around our character rather than patiently developing our character and the, and the work ethic for honest gain. Whatever the object of our desire, when, when you are tempted by the allure of the immediate, you would have a drive to have it right now. You'll be tempted to bypass doing what is right to get it right now. We find that the path of the wicked is just paved with this desire for the immediate. Whereas patience, hard work, delayed gratification, all of these are mile markers on the path to wisdom. So I've got some diagnostic questions for the allure of the immediate. What in your life right now tempts your patient trust in the Lord? What is it where you're going, God, you're not moving fast enough. It's not happening at the speed and the rate and the timing that I want and that I've determined is right. Where are you tempted to bypass the Lord's timing to get it right now? What do you want right now? And then number three, are you content with your life as it is right now? Because you see, immediacy and contentment, they don't coexist together. When you're feeling that, that pull to have it right now, you're not content. Are you content with your life as it is right now? Now, that's not to say you can't have godly ambitions. That's not to say, man, I have goals. I want to see things happen in my life. Contentment says I have those goals, but I'm also content where I am right now. Finally, Solomon highlights the trap of a counterfeit community. You notice this, this whole premise was this, the enticement of sinners, people uh, 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 enticing them to come in with their community. See, everybody to a person desires community. We are hardwired for community. Everybody 
needs it. You see, community isn't an accessory to living. It is, a, it is essential to living. Everybody needs community. We need to be known and to be loved, and we need to know and love others. You've never met a person that that wasn't something they needed to live. See, at the very heart of what it means to thrive and flourish in the Bible is this reality of community. And Solomon knows that in the absence of genuine community, we will resign for counterfeit community. See, we need community so badly. When we can't find a healthy and right and good expression of it, we will settle for anything else where it can be said, I belong here. I belong here. Now, this community um, that Solomon uh, paints for us is counterfeit because it offers false blessings and superficial relationships. On the outside, it looks like a place to belong, but it's full of false promises, and the relationships are only surface deep. The gang says, listen, come with us. Let's do this job together. We'll fill our house with precious things and, and, and plunder. But the problem is these financial blessings are blood-stained, and we know that eventually, given enough time, they will be brought to justice, and those blessings will soon turn to curses. And this counterfeit community will eventually self-destruct. As as authorities are alerted, everyone's going to start throwing each other under the bus to save their own skin because these aren't built on real, genuine uh, relationships. The organizing principle of this group is a stab and grab. It can't possibly go deep enough. It's only surface deep. Now, in this extreme example, it's easy for us to see the false promises and the trap of this kind of community. But again, wisdom says, go deeper. Learn the principle. Ask the hard questions about your community. Why? Because the company we keep has a massive influence on the course of our lives. Now, you may not intend for that to happen, but there are unintended consequences for the company that we keep. You may not intend that, the, that, your, that your primary group of people leads and directs and shapes and influences your life, but the, but the reality is the company we keep is not a neutral thing. Your, your community is always influencing and shaping you. And over time, the consequences of our community, both the good ones and the bad, Consequences isn't merely a a negative term. There's positive consequences and negative consequences. The consequences, good or bad, of our community compound and add up. The question is not, does my community influence me? The question is rather, in what ways does my community influence me? So again, go back to that, that, that question I asked at the beginning. Think about those five people who you spend the most time with. Do they encourage you? Do they motivate you to grow in your faith, hope, and love for Jesus? Do they encourage you and call you to walk down the path toward God? Or do they call you and entice you to walk down the path away from God? Now hear me, what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't have non-Christian friends. We're actually pretty big on you having non-Christian friends. We are called as Christians to have non-Christian friends and invite them into the life-giving pursuit of following Jesus. I think it was Spurgeon who once said, you're either, as a Christian, you're either a missionary or you're an imposter, okay? We are big on you having non-Christian friends. But given how influential our closest community is, it matters who that group is. 
So we have to ask, in what ways does your community help you to cultivate and to grow and to mature in your faith in Christ? And in what ways are they hindering it? In what ways do they stamp out the flames of faith? Now, as you think about those five friends, let me add a plus one to your group. One companion I want us to consider is the companionship of the culture. See, culture can also be like a friend because of how much time we spend with it. Think about it. Think about how much time in a given week you spend with movies, TV shows, music, politics, social media, the news, the internet, books, and just cultural opinion at large. Take all of that and ask, how much time this week have you spent with that friend? I would imagine it's a lot. We spend so much time interacting with the culture that it has the influence and the power of a friend. And notice, I didn't say conservative culture. I didn't say liberal culture, because guess what? Neither of them are Jesus culture, right? Right? There are ways in which each party would pull us away from the policies and practices of Christ. There are ways in which pundits are, it might sound like it, but they're half-truths which means they're really lies. They are not speaking for Christ. We can desire to fit in to the crowd and the culture around us, and we can start to adopt the morality and the practices of our cultural friend. Now, hear me. We need to be engaged with our culture, absolutely. But we need to be aware of how much we're being influenced by the culture in the process of our engagement. Wisdom says your closest community should be helping you on the path of wisdom, not enticing you to stray away from it. So let's diagnose some counterfeit community. Question one, does your community encourage your walk with the Lord? Like, Do you feel like you can't even talk about your faith with that community because of how you'll be received? Right? By not feeling free to talk about the things that you love, that's hindering your walk with the Lord. Let me ask you this. What are the things your community talks about, dreams about, gets excited about? That'll tell you what they're all about. Everyone talks about what they love. Everyone talks about what they're excited about. What are they talking about? What are those five people talking to you most about? And does that conversation encourage your walk with the Lord or does it hinder it? Number three, how does your community define success and failure, right and wrong, and desirable, undesirable. However they define that, eventually you will start to adopt the same definitions. You will adopt what is success and failure by that group. You will adopt what is desirable and undesirable, and you will, you will now become, you will define what is right and wrong based on what that conversation is having. Again, it's not a matter of if they can do that. They are doing it, and it's, and it's doing it, that community is doing it right now as we speak. Number four, in what ways are you influenced more by the culture instead of the principles and practices of Jesus? Is what we believe, is how we live more influenced by our cultural friend around us or by a firm, resolute commitment to living out scripture? Okay, if that's gotten personal, it's meant to, okay? 
We've spent some time looking at the enticement of sinners and diagnosing the temptation of greed, the allure of the immediate, and the trap of counterfeit community. Let's look and close out with these final verses to see the entrapment of sin and how we can escape. Verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Solomon closes out his lesson and tells his son ultimately what happens in this kind of counterfeit community where where greed and the allure of the immediate are the highest values. He says ultimately their greed consumes them. As they start out on their way, ironically, they're setting a trap for their very own lives. And at the end of that path, that trap that they've set consumes them and it takes away their life. He says, even the animals, the the birds know. Like, if if you were to set a trap in front of an animal, that animal would not fall prey to it. It's set right before their eyes. And he's saying, but but, but those who are so consumed by shameful gain have their eyes blinded to the reality that their greed will eventually consume them. They don't realize they're setting a trap for their life. So Solomon says, the way to avoid being consumed by that kind of caustic community is to be firm and resolute. He says, hold back your foot from their path. Hold back. It's this idea of restraint. It's it's deciding right now, I'm going to be firm and resolute. My character, my values, my beliefs are not for sale. And when you decide that in your heart before, the answer is already decided. So when the question comes, you don't have to go, well, I don't know. No, the answer is already done. So he creates this metaphor that comes up over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs. And it's this idea of life as a journey, this path. He says, hold your foot from their path. He, he outlines the path of the wicked. And over through the course of the book, we're going to see what this path of the righteous looks like. See, there's the path of wisdom and there's the path of the fool. The path of wisdom is the path of righteousness. It's the path that leads to life. And there's also a path of the fool. It's the way of the wicked and it leads to death. Hear me. Everyone is walking on one of these paths or another. And in our culture, we like to think, no, 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 there's lots of different paths. No, there's not. There are two paths. There is no third path. You're either on the path of the righteous, the path of wisdom that leads to life, or you are on the path of the unrighteous, the path of the fool, and it leads to death. There's no third option. Solomon is telling his son, listen, I want you to be forewarned so that you'll be forearmed. I'm telling you right now, make the decision. An attack is coming. And if you know ahead of time, you can be ready to defend yourself. He's saying the very best way to fight an addiction is to never experience it, to never experiment with it. The best way not to fall into the grip of heroin is to never take that first plunge. The way to not go down that path, to have to pull yourself out of that community, is never take a first step down that path. The best way to fight off addiction is to never experiment with it. 
Walk down the path of wisdom where you learn patience and you learn the benefits of delayed gratification, where your, where your passions and your desires are, are, are tempered and you learn to experience life with a heart of gratitude instead of a heart of demand, where you keep company with those who build you up, where you can offer the same in exchange to them. So the question that Solomon asks us this morning is will you keep your foot on the path of wisdom, righteousness, and life? So how do we do that? How do we keep on this path? I've got two things for us today. The first one is this. We need to consider the consequences of our decisions and choices. This is, this is wisdom in a nutshell. Sometimes we can avoid the path of the fool just by considering and the, the consequences. When we think before we act, we have time to make good decisions. So many times in our life, we go ready, fire, aim, right? Instead of ready, aim, fire. Think about what we're doing. So many times we make choices and decisions without giving ourselves the gift of time to think about the compounding effects of our decisions. You see, every day, your decisions add up. They compound. So let me, let me illustrate this for you. If you had the choice of receiving right now, today, $3 million or a penny, now, this penny doubles in value every day for a month. Which would you choose? Would you choose the $3 million now, or would you choose this magic penny that doubles in value every day for a month? Now, many of you go, give me the $3 million, I'll see you later. But if you understand compound interest, you'll know that a penny that doubles in value every day for a month is worth $5.3 million. It's a pretty magic penny. Now, I don't have that penny for you today. At first glance... It seems like the three million is the best option, but it's not. Or think about eating a small chocolate bar. It's just one of those 125 calorie bars. It's so tiny, that little piece of chocolate's so sweet. Now think about if you ate one of those, just one, a little bitty bar, every day for three years. At first glance, it's like, no big deal. It's just 125 calories. But if nothing changes in your diet, if you just add those calories without taking anything away, no additional exercise, if all things stay equal, you will gain close to 40 pounds and three years, all from just a small 125-calorie bar. See, the decisions and the choices we make every day, they compound, they add up, and the choices we make make us. Are we considering the path that our decisions take us on and the consequences of those decisions? Wisdom is the ability to pause and look at the road ahead to see the long-term effects, not merely the short-term gains of our decisions. So we need to consider the consequences of our choices and decisions. Now, second, does your heart value and love the Lord above all else? Remember last week we looked at Proverbs 1-7? Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I told you, this is the theme verse. It is the foundational verse that every lesson, that every proverb stands on. Every time you read a proverb, you should have in your mind, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The wise receive his words and the fools despise it. Remember, to fear the Lord means that God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. And when God is your highest priority, your deepest love and your foundational trust, every decision and choice you make, 
either is meant to reinforce your love and fear of God. When God is central to your life, you're always asking, does this choice, does this action increase my faith and hope and love in the Lord, or does it distract from it? And so when you come to a decision, you're going to ask, will this path, will this decision lead me to the Lord where he remains my highest priority, where my love for him will be deepened and my trust in him strengthened? And if that choice leads you down that path, then it's a good and wise decision, and you should go down that path. But if that decision causes you to deprioritize God, weakening your love for him, disrupting your trust in him, then that decision is a foolish one. That's why the fear of the Lord is the antidote to greed. See, if God is your deepest treasure, then you'll never look at a created thing to make you feel rich because you'll know what? You're already rich in Christ. You have everything that could ever make you satisfied in him. The fear of the Lord is the antidote to impatience and this need for things to have it right now. Because listen, if you trust in the Lord, then you understand that he has good for you and his timing and his ways are better than your timing and your ways. And the fear of the Lord is the antidote to counterfeit community. Because if God is your highest priority, you'll never settle to have your closest community be one that doesn't believe and value in the same thing because you are on a one-track mission to, to get God, to be near him, to be around him, and you won't even bother with counterfeit community that takes you away from him. When you properly fear the Lord and you trust in his provision, you know that that path of wisdom is filled with genuine blessings and that those who follow the Lord never end up dissatisfied ever when we're when we're tempted to stray off the path for quick gain or when greed starts to well up inside or when it seems like building and maintaining counterfeit community is just easier wisdom calls us to a deeper love and trust in the lord and to keep the end in sight first peter 1 3 through 5 helps us keep that vision in mind blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. This is at the end for all who go down the path of righteous, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God and his mercy has caused us to be born again. That means you have a living hope, and it's a living hope because it's anchored to a living Savior. See, Jesus went to the cross, and he died for your sins and didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he's fully alive. We will not end up dissatisfied when we put our trust in Jesus. At the end of the path of the righteous, we will receive an inheritance that is in perishable it's undefiled it's unfading it's kept in heaven for you and me who else can make a better offer than that and everyone joined to jesus will receive their inheritance because jesus walked down that path of wisdom perfectly for for each one of us in every way that you and i have strayed jesus stood his ground for us he never once took the sinful bait of immediate gratification he never once rejected the path of greed and he never once 
he never once uh, uh, received the offer of counterfeit community. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And he ultimately said, listen, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the path of wisdom. Everyone who follows him will make it to the end and receive their due inheritance. Let's pray.